teaching of Messiah and his resurrection. It always comes back to the teaching of God's word. It's not to say it's not accompanied by prayer, but it's not as if our prayers all of a sudden are going to result in things happening that we pray for, necessarily. But how did Paul deal with the, with the idolatry he confronted? Well, he taught the word. Then there are those who believe they hear directly from God and misinterpret Paul's statement of gifts of uh, word of knowledge. And they think that what this is is somehow extra-biblical revelation, direct revelation from God to the individual about evil forces or spirits or sinful practices. That's what oftentimes is really going on when people say, you know what, your problem is this. God has given me a word of knowledge and it is a spirit of fear or it is a demon of this or that. Then there are so, some contexts in which you have this, what's referred to as identificational repentance, where people confess the sins of their forefathers did. You see this sometimes in our case where, you know, Individuals who had nothing to do with the Holocaust because their grandparents have, they're asking forgiveness because my grandparents, you know, were Nazis. Well, you know, you can't ask forgiveness for your grandfathers. I appreciate the sensitivity. It embarrasses me that my grandparents were involved in this, but, you know, there's no forgiving of them through you. And you didn't do anything wrong. You know, you're just born into that family. No, it's, it's good. When Paul speaks about word of knowledge, I think it, it means uh, more of enlightenment and understanding of the word of God and what God's word is teaching, as opposed to direct revelation that, you know, there's someone in this room that has this problem. Or, um, you know, as you're talking with me about uh, a counseling situation, and all of a sudden I have a, a real sense that, you know what I think you may be struggling with? I, you know, many would say, God's just given me a word of knowledge. When what has really happened is, through the years of experience of talking with many, many people about similar issues, and having come to know you a little bit better, pieces begin to fall into place, and through the experiences, the learning, the understanding that I have, and no doubt God's working, I'm not dismissing the work of God in helping and bringing things to bear. But it wouldn't be because all of a sudden God has just opened my mind and now I can see this as such. And so it's a revelation of your need that is given to me. It's really, uh, you know, this uh, it's the same sort of thing that happens in counseling context. That's why uh, when individuals come to me and I say, you know, I think it would be a good idea perhaps if you talk to someone professionally, because when you have a professional counselor who really loves the Lord, is really devoted to Him, and um, is very skillful in terms of their ability and understanding how human issues work, and has had a good deal of experience and has a compassionate heart. And these are individuals that are just good at what they do. And um, I would not attribute that to some kind of supernatural, revelatory work, which God is giving me a direct view of what's really in your heart. You know, we have to always remember that Yeshua knew what was in all people, but we don't. 
we're fallen individuals just like the person we're sharing with. And, uh, but we may have experiences, we may have uh, encounters. doesn't mean we can't help each other, but when we do help each other, we must do it with a great deal of humility and realize that we could be wrong. And that God didn't all of a sudden tell me, this is what your problem is, and therefore I'm not wrong and could not be wrong. teach you all things uh-huh. is that more of just as you read the bible or he gives you a sense of i mean what do you think that means when john says that well you're talking about it in the gospel where yeah where he says that the spirit of god is going to come and teach you in all things that i've taught you so um he doesn't mean that oh all of us are going to be physicists He's going to teach us all things. All of us are going to be great mathematicians, or we're all going to be great preachers, or we're all going to be uh, great, you know, scientists, or whatever the case might be. Um, he means he's going to, he's the one that's going to be taking the words, the word of God, taking the words that the biblical writers are being commissioned and inspired by the Spirit of God to write, and that's what we see in the in the written revelation. I think there is a difference that certainly illumination is an opening of our hearts and our minds to the truths of God's word so that we can understand it more. But it, there's never a point at which that any one of us would say I understand the, this word and you know I understand it completely. We all see through glass darkly. So, you know, the moment Yeshua says, he'll teach you all things, at the same time, you're not going to understand all things, you know. So, um, what Messiah taught the disciples that they relate to us through the written word has been conveyed to us by the Spirit of God. Remember, John will also say, if all the things that he did, all the things that he taught, all the things that he said, if they were ever written, the books of the world couldn't contain them. So the all things can't mean about every single thing there is to know anything about. It must be about the things that he's now going to lead the apostles to write about and to convey and to communicate to us. Uh, I met a woman a couple years ago. She was big on um, breaking the curse of, of generational generational curses I it's like kind of was weird to me <laughs> yeah it's another one of those of those things um, now you know in in the, the law it said talks about the uh, sins of the fathers the third fourth generation um, right. the, those aren't generational curses right but they are uh, they, they are patterns, habits that are oftentimes passed down. Uh, does it mean they can't be broken? Of course not. You know, the Spirit of God saves us. He redeems us. He reconciles us. Uh, coming to Him, uh, where, as Galatians says, uh, He set us free. And so, such things need not necessarily bind anyone that comes to the Lord. But I think we also know that there, that you can see certain patterns emerge in certain families because 
a certain way of of uh, looking at life or behaving or values are passed down in their in their grace. Okay. Um, oh yeah, I just <laughs> I just want to see where we are. Um, so there is, oh, I mentioned this whole thing of identificational repentance, um, which involves people confessing what their forefathers did to another race, asking forgiveness for them. And so, you know, it's, again, there's just nothing like this in, in Scripture. But I appreciate people's, especially with regard to the Holocaust, but it could be anything, really. Um, that individuals are sometimes made to feel guilty for something their forefathers have done and then they confess that sin to others. I'm not really sure why, though they themselves are not guilty of it. But this is all sort of part of the matrix of this way of thinking about demonic activity. from national repentance. Well, you're talking about like with uh, what happens in the scripture? With Israel's national sin? Well, it's different because in the, in the case of Israel's sin, you sh we have the leaders of the nation leading the nation as a whole into rejecting Messiah. But individuals within the nation have always believed. There's always been a faithful remnant. And that idea, remember this national sin, that's our way of defining what transpires. That when uh, in Matthew 12, the rejection by the leaders of Yeshua as Messiah it sets in motion a judgment that will fall on the entire nation. Now, that's not the only time it's happened. It, that happens in Babylon, where uh, Israel is taken into captivity b by the Babylonians. Um, so, in any case, in, in, in that instance, that's something that, that God has determined with regard to the leaders of Israel. It's also part of God's plan in bringing the good news to the nations of the world. And there's also the exceptions to what the nation is doing in terms of uh, individuals. But there's no, there's no individual that then repents of the sin that their forefathers committed. They just don't commit the same sin. And they acknowledge Yeshua as Messiah. So they're sort of different things. Then when we have examples of casting out of demons, um, you can see this, these individuals that are these classes or groups that are involved in casting out of demons. Of course, Yeshua, we made reference to some. But the 12 in Matthew 10, although we're not g given a full insight into the mechanism, you have the 70, you have others, you have Philip, uh, and you have Paul in these passages. So I'm not arguing that there aren't 
cases where evil spirits have been uh, cast out. I'm only saying they're not as prevalent as what we see, and the mechanism that is utilized is not what we see in many of these circles either. But I'm not denying the reality of demonic presences or the, or the reality of demons being cast out. Gary, why was Jesus uh, impatient with the uh, 70 in Luke 10 when he re they reported to him that they could not cast out that spirit and he later went on to explain that it only comes out through prayer and fasting and it's like well you, why didn't you tell us I mean you know he was he was, he was like angry he was obviously exasperated. I guess he expected them to know so how would they know probably because Yeshua had been doing that we do know that he was praying all the time right he prayed before choosing the disciples we know that Judas, when he leads the uh, entourage from the temple to arrest Yeshua, he knows where he's going to be because he oftentimes prayed here. We know that he rose early. Isaiah chapter 55 tells us that, he, that the Lord wakes him up morning by morning to teach him directly the truths of his word. Um, so prayer was an ongoing natural, consistent part of his life. Um, I'm not sure if fasting is in the original it's, text. It's not in the oldest. Right? So, so basically, uh, these only come out through prayer. So maybe, so there's a couple of ways we might understand it. Number one, he would expect them because he's been doing it. Uh, certainly, how did he know they weren't doing it? Well, because... He didn't come out. Yeah, he's, he's omniscient. So he knows everything, right? So it's not like they were out of the sight while they were doing it. And whatever, whatever they were doing, they weren't doing by their own power, right? They were doing by the power of God. So, um, you know, that's why I think it might be. The text doesn't really tell us, per se. So how ought we to relate to uh, Satan and fallen angels? And maybe this is really the crux of the matter for me. is that in many of the circles and in the context where you see a lot of the things we've been talking about, there's very little um, said about the things that I'm going to say right now. So first of all, in Second Peter chapter 2, we're told angels are superior to us, that we are created a little lower than the angels, whether fallen or not. We are less powerful. Demons are more powerful than us. They certainly live longer than us, for they've been around since God first created them, and they do not die. They're certainly uh, smarter and more informed because they've had a lot more time to be informed. You know, so they are superior to us in Scripture points that out. In many of these contexts, the impression we get is that somehow we're, you know, uh, 
insurmountable, that somehow we are just able to do whatever we want, you know, that we uh, are able to make anything happen that we want to happen. And if it doesn't happen, it's not because we're not able to, but it's because the people that we're trying to have it happen to just don't have enough faith. But we have to remember, and as Peter is saying, angels are superior to us. So in any context in dealing with angelic forces, we ought to deal with them in a state of humility. Jude 8 and 10, verses 8 through 10, indicates that we are still to maintain a sense of respect for their position, fallen angels now, though our enemies. Not respect for them as fallen beings. But remember, God did create them as angelic servants of his. They rebelled against him. And as has already been mentioned, Michael the archangel, rather than taking it upon himself to somehow do battle with the evil one, he relegates the Lord's, the Lord's rebuke against him. And this is why in Ephesians chapter 6, we're told to put on the whole armor of God. Why? Well, because simply saying, you know, I cast you out or I consign you to this place or that place is not what is needed in dealing with the evil one. We are told in James chapter 4 that we are to resist him. Again, a great book, Dwight Pentecost book, Your Adversary the Devil, is just a great, great book. But it's a fantastic book on, uh, on the evil one. And, uh, and then, I forget the guy's first name, something Dickinson, was a professor at Moody. He wrote a book called Angels Elect and... Elect and... I forget the other word. Reprobate or something like that and deals with angels and demons. Another very good book. Two, two of those. They're dated, but they're really both very solid books. I think it's Dickinson. Dickinson. I can't remember his first name. Are we not being presumptuous by thinking that the fallen angels are in fact the demons? Because there is nothing in the Word that says that. Well, I don't want to go down that road right, right now. But uh, that's certainly the common understanding. that you were having a hard time remembering? Uh, I think it's angels elect and I think it's reprobate, but I don't know. Maybe that's wrong. Elect and unelect? I don't know. But it's a great, great, another great book. Oh, another really good book is uh, Billy Graham's got a really wonderful book called Angels. And uh, that's a real solid book on, uh, on the angelic beings. The reason I ask is because there's no instance of anybody ever being possessed by an angel, and yet they're possessed by demons. So my thought is, and I always thought that, I always thought, I, for the first whatever how many years I was a believer, I presumed that demons were fallen angels. But then questions arose about that. And I've heard very cogent explanations that they are beings of another sort. Yeah. Isn't that, is well, that not relevant? Is it not relevant to what we're discussing? I'll have to look at it. But, All right. You know. Okay. 
I think it's pretty, it's pretty common that, uh, that uh, individuals that have written extensively on this, I'm not looking to argue about it, but I'm just saying, have said that angels that have rebelled against God have uh, come to be known as demons. So I, I'm going to look. Because it is odd that why would they need a corporeal envelope? And demons seem to need a corporeal envelope. Whereas I don't they, know if they need, but in well, the case of... Uh, they begged him not to go back to the Abuso. So, you know, remember he had to go into the pigs. Yeah, but, right, but th that could be for a variety of reasons. Old waterless places. Yes. That could be for a variety of reasons other than just that, you know, originally they were... Of the series. <laughs> First John... 318 says the son of man was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil note the focus is on his works not the devil himself it's not to say that one day he won't be cast into the lake of fire but the point is that um, just to be accurate with what regard scripture says the works that he is doing but we know that from Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, the evil one was defeated at the cross. And he knows he has only but a short time remaining. I just want to see if I have this yet. Okay. Yeah, we'll go back. We'll go back. We're going coming on 9, so I want to try to move forward. I'm sorry I didn't have the outlines all for you. I intended to, but I, I got called away. First of all, which, which outline? Right, right, yeah, sure. Go right to the head of the class, Justin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had to look at my notes. All right, here we go. Some key passages. Just to look back over your notes on. First of all, Matthew 18, which deals with the whole binding, loosing thing, which simply it was a first century rabbinic expression to prohibit and to permit. John 20, verse 23 is a reference to salvation. I'll let you, you check that out. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we find that um, prayer and the Word of God are our principal weapons. Strongholds are fortresses that are built to oppose the truth of Messiah and His Word. We need to remember Ephesians chapter 6 that the enemy of our souls and his emissaries are out to destroy us. I don't want to give the impression, you know, there's no need to deal with, you know, to think about evil spirits, but we ought to be aware that they are out to destroy us and God's purposes in us. They cannot rob us of salvation, to be sure, but they can lead us astray. 
and they can put temptations or amplify things in our lives to become uh, challenging temptations to overcome. Now, we're going through this, remember, because we want to launch our prayer ministry team. So I'm sharing all these things with you so that when we pray for indivi with individuals, we do so in a meaningful, effective, efficacious way. And as you can tell, there are two things that are central for me in prayer and really in life. And that is his word. That is first and foremost. Everything must be scrutinized and compatible with his word and the presence of Messiah uh, himself as we understand him through his word. So the enemy of our souls is out to get us. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we are told, for example, that these fallen angels, demons in my view, are referred to as principalities. Now here, we're, we can't be dogmatic, but most likely the phrase is meant to refer to governing authorities, demonic uh, beings who have some role over nations as a whole. Ephesians 6 speaks about powers. Perhaps this is simply a reference to fallen angels, demons, if you will, who are vested with authority and ability. Ephesians 6 speaks of rulers of the darkness of this age. Again, perhaps demonic beings with ability, powers, authority to influence the world system. We're, we're the text, Paul speaks of spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places. term hosts is like an army you know the lord of hosts so it's sort of like their character and nature is like that of a military organization not a pack of wild dogs and so even in in the angelic world you have archangels or at least one archangel and then you have angels so how are we to deal with, I don't know what that C is, but uh, let's see what happens as we go through. Um, so how are we to deal with uh, supernatural beings that are in our world? Someone comes to us and says, you know, I'm really concerned feel it might be someone has said to me that a demon is this or that what what where are we going to go with that what are we going to do when someone asks us for prayer especially like this these are the things we need to be thinking about first of all in first john chapter 2 verse 14 the way in which we mount our attack against the evil one and his forces is first of all by abiding in god's word To abide in is to make oneself at home in. That means our life is lived 
in regards to the truths contained in God's Word. That becomes preeminent and uh, uppermost of importance. In 1 John chapter 5, certainly trust in Him, faith in Him, a, com a commitment to Him. Ephesians 6, we spoke about the principalities, powers, rulers, and spiritual forces. But that same passage tell, tells us how to deal with evil spirits. We're to take on the whole armor of God, which ultimately is the Messiah and the scriptures. For example, the belt of truth. So the belt of truth is the truths contained in God's Word. We come back to the Word of God again, the Scripture. There is the breastplate of righteousness. I think the meaning here is that a life of righteousness that flows out of a heart that is devoted to God and to righteous living. There is the sharing of the good news. I didn't hear anything. There is the shield of faith, which is ongoing trust in Messiah and His Word. That's how we deflect the fiery darts of the evil one, through Messiah and His Word. There is the helmet of salvation, was the protecting of our minds from the values of that are characteristic of the world and, and anything that's contrary to God himself. And therefore, it necessitates our understanding what Messiah has done for us as well as what he has done in us. How do we know what he has done for us and in us? We're forced back to understanding his word. In fact, everything we've talked about, the belt of truth is the word of God. The breastplate of righteousness is living out those truths of God's word. Sharing the good news is sharing what's found in the word of God. The shield of faith is our ongoing trust in Messiah and his word. The helmet of salvation is understanding what Messiah has done for us and in us, which can only be understood by understanding his word. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. So everything comes back to the word of God with the exception, to some degree, I suppose, of the final part of our, of our armor, which is prayer. But prayer, for it to be effective, must be consistent with the Word of God. Sec I'm sorry? If it's not, you're really not praying. What's that? If it's not consistent with the Word of God, then you're really not praying. It's... Well, I, I suppose you're still really praying, but it's it's uh, it's not something God's going to respond to if it's prayer that's contrary to His Word. Second Peter chapter five tells us that we are to be aware of the enemy and his efforts; that he goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, Peter says. So we are to be aware. 
I don't want to give the impression, and maybe I have, that because I am very uh, concerned about what we see going on in the more Pentecostal charismatic circles, and what oftentimes comes into our congregation, that I'm giving the impression that evil spirits aren't real, or that they are not to be combated, perhaps by overemphasizing the one I've implied the other. But I don't mean to do that. We need to be aware of the enemy. He is out there, and his cohorts are as well. And they do desire, as Paul, as Yeshua says to Peter, to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. It's interesting too, right? Yeshua could have just said, I cast him out from you for the rest of your life. You know? But no, he says, I've prayed for you. And yet, though he desires to sift him as wheat, and though Messiah has prayed for him, he still found himself denying him three times. He only gives a deliverance, but with his thorn in the flesh, he never saw it. Anyone with that gift of deliverance, he sought God about that particular. Yeah, is it, that's interesting, in isn't it? It's a way to understand the grace of God as being sufficient. Yeah. Ultimately, that has to be the case. There are uh, times God heals and uh, and delivers and all of that. But there are times when it doesn't happen that way. And we're not told why. But even in Paul's case, for whom sometimes his handkerchiefs, you know, his, I don't know what, what other term to use, um, brought healing. In the case of the apostles early on, their shadows right. passing over people brought healing. But there was a time when they all died horrendous deaths. And so these are unique, in my opinion, these are very unique manifestations for given moments in time. And not to be expected to be the norm. It wasn't even the norm in their own ministries. I mean, if it was as simple, maybe that's not the right word, but if it was as simple as simply doing a prayer march around a given city, why does Paul bother to go into the synagogues week after week after week and then be engaged in the ongoing teaching of the word to the believers? He could just simply have circled the city and said, I'm, I'm on a prayer march, and then you know just claim the city for the Lord. You know, we could all live like that. Why worry about looking both ways when you cross the street? Just, Lord, stop the cars for me. I mean, you know, we can go to the, uh, the absurd. Why? Because it's just absurd, you know, to think that that is the answer to our challenges in life. If the issue is demon possession, it would be the answer. It's true. Uh, I'm so, oh. Do you think that's what Paul has in mind when he talks about gifts of deliverance? In, in uh, where does he say it? In Corinthians? Uh, either in Ephesians or, or in, in Ephesians. Where we can talk you know, I'm not certain. Things. Right here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look. I'll look that up. In uh, Ephesians four and James four, we're told that temptations are to be fought as soon as they are discovered. So as they, you know, there's nothing sinful about temptations. 
Messiah himself was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. So you can experience temptation and not sin. But as soon as the temptation is manifest, is understood, is seen, is experienced, the resistance is to start immediately. And again, when we look at Yeshua's own dealings with temptations, lurings toward uh, disobedience, it's the word of God. It is written. It is written. It is written. The Lord could have said, I rebuke you. I rebuke you. I rebuke you. You know, I cast you out. I can't. But he says, it is written. It is written. It is written. We can't minimize this. Revelation 12, 11 speaks of the work of Messiah in our behalf. There's just two more and we'll call it. In Ephesians chapter 2, We are told that the very authority of Messiah comes to bear on our warring against the evil one. And then, of course, in Matthew 28, we are to be watchful and to be praying. We'll review some of these things, give them some thought consider them and next week when we come together we can you know if you have questions or need for clarification some of the things maybe we'll start there and uh, we'll look at look up uh, how individuals understand uh, your the phrase you're talking about Adam gifts of deliverance okay. father we thank you for this evening we are grateful Lord to come together our desire is to please you, and our desire, Lord, is to do that in an orderly fashion here at Beth Ariel. And we're desirous of relaunching our prayer ministry. I can't wait to be able to say to our congregation, if there is a need for prayer, to meet us over here or wherever to come together in prayer. So help us, Lord, to, be, to do our ministry well and in a way that's consistent with your word, in a way that is effective in meeting the needs of those who will be coming to us. We want to bring you to them. We want to come before you with those who come to us. And uh, we want to join with them in bringing them into your very presence. For it is not our prayers, per se, or even our presence, but it is your presence in their lives that we want to be catalysts uh, for so help us to do that, we pray, in a way that brings glory and honor to your name and is consistent with the teaching of your word. For we pray in Messiah's name.